good morning. Everybody doing all right? Doing good? Good to be back in the house of the Lord. Amen. Doesn't matter what kind of week we had, we can come here and we can be shaped and molded, right? Spiritual formation is what we keep talking about. We can allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to mold the people of God, right? In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked the question. It's a question I suspect a lot of people might have been thinking and not at least a, a few people asked. Jesus, what's the most important of everything that's been taught, of all the, all the rules, all the regulations, all the teachings, everything we're supposed to do or not do, what's the most important thing, Jesus? Jesus, distill what it means to love, to, fo- to follow God, rather. What does it mean? What's the most important? At this time, they had taken the commandments, Ten Commandments given to Moses and had, had, had extrapolated them into about 613 either prohibitions or things you ought to do or ought not to do. We're really good at the legalism, as, at the rules, at the dissecting. This is good, this isn't. At, the, at not necessarily the spirit of the law, but the letter of the law. We're good at focusing on the letter of the law. Like there's some people that always do the minimum. What's the minimum I need to get in? I mean, that's really what they're asking. What's the, what do we got to do? And Jesus says something really pretty remarkable when he says this. Mark 12, verse 28 says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And noticed that Jesus had given him a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. There is nothing more important. If you had to distill it down, if it had to be the irreducible core of of what it means to, to live for God is this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with your affection, with your intention, with your emotion, with your action, with your intellect, with your heart. Heart in Hebrew, it is, it is the source of who you are. It's not just an organ that pumps blood. It's not just a thing that, you know, you get all wishy-washy when you see someone you care about. No, it, it's, it's the center of everything. With your heart means with all of you. It is with your essence, with with your whole being. Love the Lord your God, and as a result, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, this is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is more important than any religious tradition, than any act of obedience. This is more important than serving and giving. This is more important than showing up. This is everything. It is the primary calling. It is the place from which all of life and ministry happens. And so maybe you're here and you have all these different ideas and views and you think Christianity is, is maybe it's a list of do's and don'ts or uh, Christians are people who can't do any of the fun stuff or maybe you're here and you all have all these things. And when Jesus is asked the central question, what matters? He says what matters is that you love the God who created you and loves you with every fiber of your being. And as a result of that love, you live no longer a slave to self. 
No longer simply managing your own desires. No longer simply building your own kingdom, but free from self-centeredness to love others. To live the best possible way you can love. In verse 34, it says, When Jesus saw he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, nobody dared ask Jesus any more questions. I love that. And we talked about that a few months ago. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus, we are called, when we have a surrendered encounter with Jesus, that's what we're going to look at, we are called to then live as citizens of a different place. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that will come, that will be in, you know, we've said before, we've talk, we talked about this idea of heaven, but there's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a place where we will dwell with God forever, where we will live according to kingdom of God's principles, where we will worship him, where we'll be free from being self-centered, right? This kingdom of God where it's served to be great, die to live. Give to receive. It's an upside-down kingdom, we've said. Where our allegiance isn't to self, but it's to Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. You've begun now to walk in the kingdom of God here on earth. And as Christians, as Christians, we are called, when we talk about spiritual formation, we are called to be culture changers. That means what we need to do is be in a process of spiritual formation, to become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus gives us the great commandment by not only asking us to love God and others, but living a life that perfectly demonstrated that. We've talked before, but in another place, and here Jesus says, he answers the question with two things they've known. You know, he speaks from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. This is something they've known their whole lives. Love God, love others. They had heard that. This was Old Testament stuff. At another place in Scripture, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God as I have loved you. Which means he's raised in the bar. Because what do people do right away? Love God and love others? Love your neighbor? Well, who's my neighbor? Well, how do you love? Because that's what we do. You got the answers that you want, right? See, our problem isn't that we don't have the right answers. Our problem is we don't apply it. Because we live, you know, submitted to the, the, the flesh and we live governed by the flesh instead of the spirit. We have the right answers. We need the spirit of God. We need the word of God. We need to be surrounded by the people of God. To walk in the power of God. And, and you know, I say this, I, I talk to people all the time and, and you know, they'll, t- they'll talk about their, their Christian walk and their struggle. And I'll say, you know, what do you do for a living? And, well, I'm a mechanic. Okay, well, you know, how long did you have to go to school to be a mechanic? Oh, I, you know, I went to school for 20 years and then I practiced for another 20. And, you know, it's like, okay, so it took you some time to get good. Yeah. How long have you been a Christian? Oh, 30 years. Well, how much time do you spend in your spiritual formation? How much time do you read the Word and pray? Do you have people in your life who say, hey, man, am I... Am I, you know, am I, am I like Jesus? Am I, I mean, you got things in my life, and people, you know, deer in headlights. Yeah, I don't really spend any time in my spiritual life. And we wonder why we struggle spiritually. When we think to, to, to follow Jesus or to be a Christian means we think certain things. We check certain boxes. And Jesus didn't say, I invite you to think a certain way about me. He never said that. 
He said, if you believe who I am, here's who I am. And we don't persuade. We don't argue. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. I'm going to teach apologetics. I'm not saying there's not intelligent debate about God's existence. I'm saying most people's problem isn't intellectual. It's a heart problem. They're wounded. They're hurt. And church people haven't been the loving people that you know we've been portrayed out to be. So when you say to somebody, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? They're going to be like, the hypocrites? The people who tell everybody else how to live? You say, no. What does it mean to live like Jesus? Forget about your experience in the church. What does it mean to live like Jesus? You know, we, we, we have an encounter with Jesus. An authentic encounter with Jesus. Where he meets us in our brokenness. He meets us in the middle of our situations and our circumstance. And he offers us healing and freedom and redemption. And he sets us free. And then he calls us as a result of that. As a result of receiving his grace and mercy. To be distributors of his grace and mercy. To be change agents. And we're going to see that throughout scripture. The greatest commandment is the foundation for Christian living. You cannot talk of being a disciple or following Jesus if you haven't trusted in him. Not in an idea, but in a person. Trusted in Jesus. God in the flesh. The expectation of an authentic and surrendered encounter with Jesus is that from that day forward we live with a different king. I've said before, you can't tell people you're following Jesus when your whole life you're asking Jesus to follow you. Following Jesus means he leads. It means you invite people to walk with you. I, I, you know, I shared this example, but there are people in my life that they know I love them. That I, I've proven that relationally. I, I like to use the phrase relational capital. I've earned the right to speak into their life. They know I love them. And this, guys, you know, I'll hear, you know, people will talk. And, you know, everybody likes to sometimes disguise gossip as prayer. Did you hear about this person? We ought to pray for him. Right? Right? We know what that is, Christian, Christians, right? And so I'll hear stories about guys maybe I haven't talked to in a while, two, three years, whatever, and they're struggling. I'll call them up, and, and they know I love them, and I've earned that. And the first thing I'll say is, hey, how's your walk with Jesus, brother? First thing I'll say, not hi, how you doing? I don't care. I love you. I'm going to get to the heart of it. Brother, how's your walk with Jesus, man? I'm hearing some things. Are you okay? What can I do? What can we do? How can we get you back to where you need to be? Do you have people in your life to ask you that question? Are you honest enough to ask yourself that question? See, you know, and I, and I shared this before too, Pastor Jamie and I, I mean, what a blessing to have such a, a long-lasting friendship to do this work 35 years to the point it's almost weird where I, the other day I called him, I said, hey, you know, we should pray you seem a little off. I mean, we know each other so well, it's like, hey, are you, you know, you, you're a little off. Can we, you know what a blessing that is to have somebody who knows you so well that they can sense when you're off and they say, brother, can we pray? I think you're going through some stuff. We got to invite accountability, church. It's not uncomfortable. You think because I'm the lead pastor, you think I don't have people that speak, I mean, obviously my wife's the boss, that's one example, but there, I mean, that's no mistake. We'll just throw that right out there. 
I was just talking to somebody laughing. It's funny that your wife tells you what to wear. I'm like, is it funny? I thought that was just how it went. I, it's like a hostage negotiation. Well, can, I can wear shorts. Can I wear a T-shirt? No, you got to wear a college shirt. Okay. I got the shorts in. Sorry. I don't know where I was going with all that. You have to have people that can speak truth to you. No matter what your position, no matter who they are, you have to have people that will that love you enough to tell you the things you need to hear even when you don't want to hear them, especially when you don't want to hear them. It is not unloving, it is not loving rather, to tell somebody, to not tell somebody something they need to hear because it might make you feel a little uncomfortable. That is the opposite of loving. To withhold truth in a relationship because it might make things a little uncomfortable. It might cause conflict. Ooh, who am I to say? And I'm not saying you walk up to somebody you've never met and, you know. But we ought to be in relationships where we can live this stuff out. And that's what we're going to talk about. And so this, this sermon, this teaching, it's casting the vision of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's casting the vision with what we think it looks like here at CFC. And here's the thing. It's happening. It's happening. We're receiving it. It's happening in my life. I'm growing. I'm going deeper with Jesus. I'm falling more in love with him. It's happening all around us. Every week, week after week, I hear people say, hey, it's my second time here. I love this place. So, you know, I just came. I want to I I plug in. Or, I mean, it's happening. The only question you have to answer is, do you want it to happen to you and through you as well? Or do you just want to observe it? Just want to hear about it. You want to stay on the sidelines. The enemy's got you on the sidelines. Doesn't matter if it's because, you know, your whole life you believe in the lies. Doesn't matter if you're too busy. Doesn't matter what it is. The enemy doesn't care. Just cares that you're sidelined. So this isn't just like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the vision of what it looks like for the people that work here. I'm going to share the vision of what it looks like for the pastors. No, I'm, I, I believe that we're talking about what it looks like in the Bible to follow Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus has to mean to prioritize him or it means nothing at all. And we continue to hear pastors and churches and people write books and there's all kinds of material that have reduced Christianity to some self-help program. As though through Jesus we have the ability to make better choices. And so now we were less nice and now we're nicer. Jesus didn't come to make you nicer. He came to set you free from sin and death. He didn't come to make you a better creature. He, made, he came to make you entirely new. And so, and, and, all, and we've said this before, all of, all of Scripture, the whole themes, all the theological themes in the Bible can be found in Genesis. And in Genesis, sin enters the picture, and we say, and that affects our relationship with God, and we know that. Right? We know that we had a perfect relationship with God, and sin enters the picture. And the first thing we see is, well, that affected how we relate to God, and that affected how we relate to others, and those things are true. But the very first thing that happened is it says they were naked and ashamed, so they hid. The very first thing that happened when sin entered the picture is that each of us, deep down inside, every human being inescapably recognizes there is something fundamentally wrong. I have this desire to be fully known and fully loved. And I think I can't. Because if anybody knew me, they couldn't love me. I mean, God exists 
The Trinity is a perfect relationship, isn't it? God in his very essence is relational. And we are created in his image. That means our identity, our value, our purpose, our meaning, our very breath comes from him. And that means that sin messed that up. And that means that every one of us think, I can't be fully known and fully loved. And so we hide. And then we come to church and we hear that Jesus set us free. And and that we don't have to be naked and afraid anymore. That we don't have to live in shame. That our identity comes from Jesus alone. That through the Spirit and through the Word that we're being built into the image of Christ. That the fruit of the Spirit's made manifest. And instead, what do we do, church? We come to church and we put different masks on and we polish off the outside. And we show up week after week and we're still naked and we're still afraid. And we still haven't known the love of God in a way that sets us free, in a way that wrecks us in the best way possible. And that's the invitation. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, those who, you're weary. You need rest for your soul. You've been trying to do it yourself. You've been trying to do it the way, you know, the religious way. What's the way? What are the rules? Jesus says it's relational. It's grounded in love. It's grounded in the love of God who created you, who wants you to flourish. I understand when the world thinks, oh yeah, Christianity, you know, Christians that you don't do the fun stuff. And I get when the world thinks that. That makes sense to me. But Paul speaks to that. When Paul says, do you not think that the, that the God who sent his son to die for you, do not think he will also do all things, that he will also give you all things? Paul's going, you want to prove that God loves you and wants what's best for you? He sent his son to die for you. What more proof do you need? Either you believe that or you don't. So again, the Gospels, it's preached and it's proclaimed. It's not persuaded. Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He was the promised Messiah. He did what Israel couldn't do. He did what the first Adam couldn't do. He did what I couldn't do and what you couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. And through that, we are redeemed. This took place. It took place in history. Jesus is alive today. Paul says, either that's true or throw the entire thing out. Paul says, either Jesus was who he claimed to be by raising from the dead, or he says, of all people, people we're to be most pitied in Corinthians. Paul says we're to be pitied because everything we believe is a lie if Christ was not raised. But Paul says Christ has been raised. And he's alive today. See, from a surrendered encounter with Jesus, the expectation is from that day forward we live as citizens of a different kingdom. I like to call us a beautiful mess. Does it mean we get it right? No. But it means we keep trying. Does it mean we get it right? No. But it means we have people in our lives who will call, and the first thing they'll say is, how's your walk with the Lord? Cut right to the chase. It's not about niceties. It's about, I love you. And I know what you need is your walk with Jesus. And so the great commandment is the motivation for and the source for 
the power for our commitment, our commission given by Jesus. Our biblical motivation, we said, is to fulfill the great commission using an incarnational understanding of ministry. In other words, it's not just what would Jesus do. It's who would Jesus be. There's a lot of ways to replicate behavior. There's a lot of motivations to change behavior. Fear is one of them. Fear is a good one. But Jesus didn't motivate out of fear. I'm not saying you don't have a respect and a reverence for God. I'm saying that we serve God as we're going to see as a result of we were set free. We were given life. We were given sight. And now we, like we say, we're just one beggar going around showing another beggar where to find bread. We found the source. We found the living water, the bread of life. And now we're just telling everybody else. What kind of person do I have to be when the world says, the statistics, opioid addiction, 98%. I don't know what it says. I don't care what the statistics say. I know what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say you're, you're, you're an addict. Jesus says you're a new creation. Jesus says you're a child of God. Jesus says, I'm going to set you free. And that wasn't the end. Jesus didn't say, I want to get you off drugs. Who cares? There's a lot of people. I had a friend of mine. I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm not doing heroin. I said, that's good, but a lot of people are not doing heroin. That's, not a, low, that's a low bar. What else you got? How's your walk with Jesus? And he said, well, I'm working on it. Well, I'll take that. We got we to walk it out, church. We got to speak love for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, and whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. See, our, our identity and our purpose comes from the love of the Father. We are changed to be change agents. We keep saying week after week about being a relational discipleship community that the expectation is that we mature in Christ. That there's nobody here that you just go, you know, I've been maturing in Christ for the past 30 years. I'm going to take this year off. I'm going to take this year off from discipleship, and then I'm going to resume it, right? It's like being on a treadmill. You're on a treadmill, and you say, I think I'm going to stop jogging right now. Let me know how that works out for you. You can watch videos on YouTube of that very thing if you want. What happens? You go right back, right? You've got to keep going. You don't stop. You don't rest. Know the word and be equipped for the work, right? He who began a good work in you is going to continue it. It's not going to stop. If he's not going to stop working in you, are you going to stop? I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and they were going through some stuff. And, you know, I need some help. And I said, all right, here's the deal. Ready? I will put as much effort into your life as you need, but I'm not going to put more into your life than you will. I'm not going to put more effort into your life than you will. And that's what people want. That's what people want. Everybody wants to be a mature Christian. Nobody wants to read the word. All, we, and, and we talked about this. But we are being spiritually formed. You cannot not be spiritually formed. You cannot not be educated. You cannot not be molded and conformed to something. And so what does Paul write in, 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 uh, in, uh, Rome, in uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your eye. Do not be conformed to the image of the world. Don't be shaped and molded into everybody else. 
but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What renews your mind? The Spirit of God, through the Word of God, with the people of God. Paul's saying the alternative to, to being conformed, the, the default is if you just stand here and do nothing, you're going to be like the world. The world is going to shape you and form you. Through the power of God, through the Spirit of God, you're given the ability to resist that. But you've got to walk in it. And here's the thing, as true as I'm standing here, and I say it all the time, people laugh, there's no better way to live. There's no better way. You can have all, whatever you think is the best way, whatever it is, Wealth, women, wine, from day one in the scriptures you see it. There's no new sin. There's no new temptation. That's what it is. Wealth, women, wine. It's reduced to some chemicals that make me feel good, some relationships that may not be good for me, or some sense of power and wealth where people say, look at me. Why? Why do I need that? Because I don't know who I am in Jesus. And so if I don't get validated by my identity in Christ, I need to get validated by something else. Because don't forget, and psychologists and you know, the, uh, theologians, sociologists, humanists, everybody will say this is true. Don't forget, I feel like there's something wrong with me. And so i got to keep distracted. i got to not think about it. i got to keep trying these things that I think will fill me, and they don't. And so most of us live our lives sufficiently distracted, just an arm's length away from the thing we think it's gonna, that's going to fulfill us, that's going to that's gonna, you know, make us feel okay, that's going to take away all that sense of brokenness in us. And sometimes you'll see people who will reach those goals. They'll make that money or they'll have that, whatever it is. And you know what? You talk to them and it's gone. That feeling is fleeting. C.S. Lewis talks a lot about pleasure and joy, about lasting Christ-centered joy, about resting and saying it doesn't matter what the world says about me. It doesn't matter what I think about me. What matters is what God tells me, the truth of who I am, created in the image of God, being restored into the image of God by His Spirit. That's what matters. That's what's true. Nothing else matters. We need to recognize that truth. It is always living out of our comfort zone to live for Jesus. We said it. We said it a couple weeks ago. When you look at Joseph, when you look at Abraham, when you look at Paul, they trusted in God. And we said they were only able to live sent. They were only able to stay on mission because they were centered. In other words, they knew who God was. They remembered their encounter with him. And so in my life when temptation comes, in my life when I struggle, in my life when I don't want to do a certain things, I have to go back to that time. I have to remember who he is when he met me, that he kept his promises, that he's faithful, that he set me free. I got to remember what he did. And then I got to hold on to the promise of what he's going to do. And that's what you have to do. That's what Abraham did. That's what Joseph did. That's what Paul did throughout scriptures. In the midst of uncertainty, the very disciples we're going to talk about what happened. They walked with Jesus. They, they saw Jesus heal. They saw Jesus teach. They slept with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They were with him all the time. Jesus gets arrested and they scatter. I mean, talk about feeling like a failure. Talking about, well, that's it. We're off the team. And what does Jesus do? He meets them and he says, all authority on earth has been given to you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you my authority. 
when, G, when Peter, and I love Peter, Peter is like my guy, because Peter's, his heart's in the right place, but he always says and does the wrong thing. I feel like I'm Peter all the time. I feel like in my head, I'm like, don't say that. You shouldn't say it. Think it, but don't say it. And then I say it, and it's like, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and Jesus, what did, you know, Peter, I don't even know the guy. Jesus, I don't even know who that is. That would have broken my heart, right? You're having a leader, somebody you point to, what does Jesus do? Was Jesus heartbroken? Show, what does he do? He says, Peter, you love me? Feed my sheep. He restores them. He reminds them of the first thing. If you really love me, take care of the people that I care about. Teach and feed the people that I care about. Don't just say it. You said it before, and when it came down to it, you ran. Now, if you love me, it translates into action. Help the vulnerable. Help the new believers. Help those who need help. And so when we talk about the vision and we, and we recap the vision quick here, I'm going to go through some of this stuff. Right? We said there's an educational component of this relational discipleship community. Because if spiritual formation happens no matter what we do, we've got to be attentive to it. And so we said, there's three components of what we think, you know, Christian Fellowship Center, what we want ministry to look like here. And the educational component, we said, involves credentialing, lay training, apologetics, conferences. And it also involves devotional and prayer. So in my master's degree, when I was going for my master's degree, every semester we had a spiritual formation course. And in the middle of the semester, you took a course that was a devotional course. It taught you how to go deeper with Jesus devotionally. It wasn't necessarily academic. Sometimes we got hung up on all the, the right answers to the test and the academic part, and we neglect sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, and I've said before, especially in ministry, it's very easy. It's very easy to, to you know, have m- your ministry, you know, look like it's your relationship with Jesus. Oh, well, I show up, I, I go to everything, that somehow that translates into our walk. It's not. It's a different thing. Don't think that because we're here, you know, that that's, no. If anything, the enemy will use that to make us think, oh, no, you, you know, you're in the Bible all day. You don't need to read. There's a very different thing than reading the Bible academically or than reading the Bible devotionally. So when I say education, I very much mean, in all of this stuff, spiritual formation, but learning to devote. Learning principles. I think, you know, earlier in the in early church, you know, there were, there were this, this great inner life. There was a lot of attention to the inner life and to solitude. And we sort of just got away from that entirely. And we need to get back. More than ever, we need to slow down and be quiet. Our lives are filled with noise and activity. And I, I'm not going to go off on a tangent, but I, re, I read a lot of stuff. We are... You know, people say, well, throughout time, there's always something. There are a lot of very unique things that happen to us that have never happened in history relative to our psychological makeup. And so that means that in a fundamental way, that, 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 that deep feeling of insecurity, that deep feeling of something wrong, there are more things than ever that try to speak to that. And the, the whole idea of, 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 of social networking gives the, the transparency. It, it gives a, the perceived benefit of relationship without the accountability of relationship. So you take people who are, are already relationally deficient because for all of our wealth and all of our independence, we are relationally deficient with God and with others. That whole thing, love God and love others, we just love ourselves. All we know how to do is love us. 
And so we're distracted, and there's all these things that make us think. And the biggest problem we have is that we don't know how to be in relationship. And so we need to quiet down. We need to hear that still, small voice. Because in the scriptures, when Jesus encountered an individual, that, when that was an authentic encounter, there's two things that can happen. Like the rich young ruler, you can go, I don't know, Jesus, I mean... I'll, you know, catch up with me later. I got some stuff going on. I'm kind of happy with it. I'll, I'll let you know. I got a lot of stuff. I mean, Jesus, I'd love to serve you. The stuff you talk about, Pastor, it sounds good in the church, but you know, I got this. I mean, I got this thing at work. Okay. And the rich young ruler says he went away sad. I think for the rest of his life, he, he must have realized I made the wrong choice. Or you can have an encounter with Jesus and you can realize this changes everything. This changes how I relate to my spouse, how I relate to my kids, how I relate to my boss, my neighbor. It's got to change everything. Educational component. We said the resource component involves parachurch partnerships. It's a felt needs ministry. Most people don't have this idea of health, home, purpose in a community, right? Speaks to those immediate needs, those things we want. We want to be in a relationship. We want to feel safe. So what do you do? You come alongside people. It's where James says you pray for him, but you give him a coat. You pray for him, but you give him a meal. You pray for him, but you give him a ride. You pray for him, but you visit him when they're in prison. It's a resource component. So you have an educational component, the resource component, and then the service component. Where this is an opportunity. Now you've been doing it. You've been given. You've been serving. You've been centered. You, you, you know, you're living sent. Now here you, you replicate that. Now you pour into others. Now's an opportunity to learn and to lead and to serve, to give back. We've said it's critical, especially for all the folks in the church. And a couple weeks ago I said, instead of complaining about the next generation, oh, kids this generation, they want everything for free, they're so lazy. I know, I've heard it all before. And when you were a kid, somebody said it about you, and it just ad nauseum. But instead of complaining about the next generation, why don't you mentor them? Why don't you pour into them? Why don't you pray for them? Why don't you love on them? Why don't you try to communicate with them? See, a lot of times we have an encounter with Jesus in the midst of a great turmoil, a great trial. He meets us and he changes us and he sets us free and he gives us life. But he doesn't just set us free from our past. Listen to me. Jesus doesn't just set you free from your past. He sets you free toward your future. So the answer to my question, my friend I love, and I know he's going to call God in his life, and I call, you know, and I said, you know, how are you doing? I'm not doing how. Well, that's not good enough, man. Jesus doesn't want you to just not do drugs. Jesus doesn't want you to just, no, Jesus wants you to serve him, man. Jesus wants you to find your home in him. The invitation isn't think a certain way. The invitation is believe in me. Believe in me, that means trust me. It doesn't just mean think certain things about me. We've talked about that. Jesus says, trust me. I've proven myself trustworthy. Abide in me, which Pastor Jamie was just talking about, one of my favorite words. It means remain. It means make your home in is my best, you know, the, the definition I like the best. Make your home in. Jesus is saying, have that be the place where you reside, the source of your comfort. Have that be where your retreat and your respite. Abide in me. Trust in me. Follow me. And if, if, and if everything doesn't happen out of an overflow of love, if you haven't fallen in love with Jesus, if you don't know who he is or what he's done for you, then it's just religion. 
then he just, he's answering the question, people who thought the answer was religion, and Jesus responded with a relationship. That's what happened. Jesus said, you guys got all wrong. It's not in what you do or what you don't do. It's the reason for what you do or what you don't do. It's not just what would Jesus do. It is that. But more importantly, it's having your heart break for the things that break God's heart. I, and I've said this before. I say it all the time. I, I have to pray all the time, Lord, help me see people the way you see them. Give me a heart for the people. In Luke Chapter 7, and I, lo- I love this scripture, Luke chapter 7, I'm going to begin in verse 36. It says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Interesting thing to say, right? We know what that means. She was likely a prostitute. She was a known sinner. So the only thing different about her is everybody knew about her sin. So as opposed to everybody with their hidden sin, she was a public sinner. She was a disgrace. She was an embarrassment. Everybody knew. She couldn't hide. You know, the best thing about drug addiction is it gets to where you can't hide it anymore. Right? The best thing in my life I've said before that ever happened is the wheels fell off. There was no pretending I had it together. There were, people say, oh, you gave your life to Jesus. I gave nothing to Jesus. I was like, this, I, there's nothing left. I made a mess of it. I don't know. Take it back. I don't know what to do. You can't even fix this thing, but you can have it. And then he goes, oh, watch me. This is where I show up. Watch me. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the time, just a couple minutes, because it's important here to recognize what's happening. First of all, the last thing somebody would do with a bad reputation, typically, when all the, all the big dogs, all the religious leaders, all the respectable people are gathered together, and you know you're gathered, you stay away. So the fact that she recognized Jesus is in there, I need to get to Jesus, and I don't care what people think. There are people in this room right now, and you're not going to respond, you're not going to, you're holding on, whatever it is, because you're wondering what people think. She didn't care, she had had enough, you know what I mean? You know when you've had enough, and your addiction, and your sin, and your struggle, and your relationship, whatever it is, you've had enough, and it's at the point where you don't care now? You're not just Brian, a little crying. You're like snots coming out, sobbing, crying on all. You're just like, <laughs> right? You don't care. It doesn't matter what it looks like. She's at that point. And when she goes and she breaks this jar of perfume on Jesus' feet, she's saying a lot. First of all, that's valuable. It's probably all he had. Second of all, prostitutes would regularly have perfume. It was part of their profession. And what she's saying is, I don't need this anymore. I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm giving my past up. I don't care the value of it. That's what's happening here in the scriptures. And standing behind, I'm sorry, 
getting all excited here. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she learned he was reclining at the table, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisees who invited him in saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman who is touching him that she is a sinner. A broken person. A person who Jesus came to save comes to receive that way he has in the religious people. Not only do they not make an environment for it, they don't even see it. And so Jesus says this, Simon, can I tell you something? Because imagine me with Jesus and he's always teaching to everybody and that's one thing, but he's like, hey, Brian, listen up. This one's for you, buddy. You paying attention? Yeah, Jesus, what's up, man? Everybody's looking at him. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors and owed 500 denarii. One owed 500 and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, which would have been rude and unthinkable, in fact. That was never not done. In fact, the more, the more servants you had to wash the more people's feet, it was like a badge of honor. It was like a, a status symbol. But to have not wiped anyone's feet, when after they traveled, their feet are dirty, they sit down close to each other. It was disgusting. It was unhygienic. It would have never happened unless they were too distracted, unless they thought they were better than that, unless they didn't know who Jesus was really, unless they knew the religious system, the letter of the law, but they missed the spirit. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, but I'm standing here, and you miss it. Pilate looks at truth in the flesh and says, what is truth? Spiritual eyes. We need spiritual eyes. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to her, your sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for you loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table began to say to themselves, he, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he looked at the woman and said, go, your faith has made you well. I don't know about you, but I've been forgiven much. I don't know about you, but I've been set free from a lot. And I don't know about you, but I can't help but tell people about that. I can't help but when I see people suffer and say, you know, you don't have to live another single day like this. And I know that that's hard to believe, but as sure as I'm standing here, there's a God who created you, and there's a God who loves you, and there's a God who has a plan for your life. 
I was talking to some of you the other day. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And they said, yeah, well, I don't believe in God. And I said, well, that's okay. He still believes in you. See, Tim Keller has said, no matter how good we make our events, people in the world are less inclined to show up to church events because they haven't been enamored by church people. But it's about Jesus' events and Jesus' people. And so we're going to talk about apologetics and evangelism and all those classes. And when people say, I can't wait to hear that because I don't know what to do. And every time you see me, and if you see me in the gym, this is what I'm going to tell you. Do you know how to be a friend? Do you know how to be a friend? Because that's where it starts. Building relationships. Earning relational capital. Earning the right to speak into people's lives. The Sermon on the Mount was this. Jesus saying, you've heard it said this. But let me tell you this. Paul's ministry was taking people from what they knew about God to what they needed to know about God. Sometimes they knew nothing. Sometimes they knew a little bit. And we do that because we've been forgiven much. Because we love much. And I promise you, and Jesus said it, if you spend your whole life trying to save it, in other words, if you spend your whole life living for you, building your kingdom, going after your stuff, trying to fill the void you have, trying to fix the wound you have, you will live filled with regret, unfulfilled every day. And if you give your life to Jesus, I'm not going to say it's easy. Some people will tell you that, but it's not. It's not easy. It's tough. But it's beautiful. And there's no better way to live. And he will use you in remarkable ways. And I know this is no surprise to anybody, but I don't know how many times I have found myself in a parked car after I just had met somebody in a store or met somebody just weeping my eyes out, overwhelmed that once again God showed up in somebody's life because I was willing to be a friend. Amen?